Smart Council is a production of New Pattern Counseling, with additional support from Multnomah University. To learn how to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Reese Basimio is a counselor, teacher, and writer, and the founder of New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon. His clinical specialties are addictions, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of Smart Council. This episode is one of a series of lectures that I delivered in a class setting. The class was an introduction to addictions, and the context was a master's in counseling program at a Protestant university. Given this context, the episodes are longer, live, and a bit more organic than normal. You may hear gaps in conversation. These represent where I paused to interact with a student question. Otherwise, uh, this is me having the most fun public speaking that I can imagine. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Welcome back to this edition of your class, your addictions class with me, Reese Basimio. This is uh, COU 655 in the Master's in Counseling program. And uh, this is one that I'm very excited about. We're getting to finally talk about addiction interaction. So this is um, partly continuing on, always continuing on the exploration of just what is addiction, what's going on with addiction. Uh, And this is also starting to get into some more diagnostic and treatment considerations as well as we're uh, looking at just what is going on and how to tell just what that is. So... We're talking a little bit about co-occurring addictions. So there are some terms out there. So you'll hear terms like dual diagnosis or comorbid addictions or co-occurring disorders. I believe that the more current preferred term is uh, co-occurring disorders. And um, that's going to be talking about where there's a mental health concern such as depression, anxiety, trauma, uh, as well as an addiction, typically understood to be substance-related, maybe gambling. So um, we're talking a little bit more specifically around how different particular interactions interact. Uh, For me, there's kind of this assumption that there's always a comorbidity that where there's addiction, of course, there's going to be some sort of (laughs) something mental health-wise is not quite going right. And generally, um, what's maybe a little bit less well-known is that wherever there's also like a mental health disorder, there's generally some sort of uh, addiction or compulsion going on in the background. Uh, Briefly, so recapping what we said addiction is. So addiction is coping with stress, generally speaking. It is escape from the distress, escape from the reality. Uh, One important thing to remember is that, uh, especially once we factor in that addiction is response to pain and there's a compulsive aspect to it, it's not always, it's not fun. People don't addict to to have fun or to enjoy themselves. Some, some, they, people will use drugs, they'll use sex, they'll use gambling, they'll use food, they'll, they'll use it for fun. But once it gets to the point of addiction compulsion, it's not a thing they do for fun and or to feel good. It's a thing they do to feel less than whatever they're feeling that that is worse. Uh, and so now we can say that the, the, the addiction, it's a bond um, comparable to what ideally we should have had with, uh, we should have had a secure attachment with our primary caregivers. 
In this case, that wasn't available for some reason, so we have this bond with this experience. Maybe this drug, maybe maybe with sex, maybe with food, maybe with our, our work, and it's that, that bond that momentarily and rather reliably helps us to feel what we want to feel or to not feel what we don't want to feel. And we've also said that addiction is um, a failure to learn to deal with feelings in a mature manner. Uh, there's one quote that says, how to deal with feelings is one of the most essential life skills. Uh, it's a quote by Patrick Carnes. And in the, the addicted person, to one degree or another, this skill is generally missing or deficient or not quite healthy in that sense. Um, and so on the other end of that, when we talk about what it, what is recovery, we'll talk about being able to have an, an unfiltered, uncensored, uninhibited experience of your reality um, at, at, at whatever cost. And that can talk about both your external reality as well as your internal reality, maybe even more particularly with your internal reality, being able to feel your feelings, think your thoughts, experience your body, and not need to escape it. That's uh, a core aspect of recovery. Addiction is response to trauma, response to anxiety, um, particularly a response to fear. Uh, it develops, again, in a, in a childhood marked by lots of fear, lots of anxiety. And uh, another, another quote from Patrick Carnes in his book, The Recovery Zone, Fear changes the brain, fear alters the very structure of the brain. And that's talking about the neurobiology and the, the, the self-connections. Uh, chemicals, the quote continues, chemicals that keep the brain in high arousal are generated in excess, and the chemicals that soothe and help in decision-making actually decline. This is very important. Take the fear away, and the child will feel that something is missing. That child will grow up to be an adult who will be in constant crisis. Um, and the idea is that, again, you, when in childhood you're lacking a secure attachment and you have the presence of lots of fear, lots of stress, there's the chemical component to that, the adrenaline, the cortisol, the feelings, the hormones that are good for survival. They're good for mobilizing you to run away or to fight your way out of a moment. Um, but they're, the, they're meant to be turned off, that they're meant to be you're meant to become aroused and then serotonin kicks in, you, you calm down. When you're just always up and always aroused, uh, that's what causes the damage. And that's what, um, it, it's those hormones themselves, they're, they're harmful for, for the body long term. And two, especially for, for children where everything is, is being normalized and, and is formative. You have a kid in, in constant fear, constant unease, just constant like disconnect. Uh, you know, constant, you know, upheaval, that's their normal. And so they'll tend to gravitate toward that normal and try to reenact and live in that normal even into adulthood. Even after logically they realize, like, I want something different than what I had as a kid, there's still this deep, instinctive, embodied sense that normal is all the chaos up here, and they're going to want that. And that's another major driver of what addiction is. Addiction is a response to neglect. Um, Neglect, it's, it's, it's the silent killer. It's the, it's the abuse. Well, like acute neglect, you know, kid left at home for three weeks alone. I, I mean, that, we, we, we recognize that. But the more emotional neglect, like the kid just never got nurtured, never got attention, never got focus, never got eye contact. That doesn't get seen as often, but it, the effects can be just as dramatic uh, over time. There is this aspect of addiction that is based on seeking out novelty, something new, uh, it's this idea that that more is better. Uh, like if um, 
I run into this in the evenings. I'm like, hey, well, if, if watching a show would be good, watching a show with wine would be even better. Okay, if watching a show with wine would be good, then watching a show with wine and ice cream would also be good. And if having ice cream is good, well, having ice cream with like nuts and chocolate chips and extra fun, these fun stuff, like that would be really, really good. Um, and it just kind of explodes and explodes. And if like, you know, one episode is good, two episodes would be better. That There's that idea. Um, this is, the, this is the, the neurological basis for tolerance, which we'll talk about a bit more when we talk about uh, looking for um, the diagnostic criteria, but one feature of a disordered use, disordered relationship with a substance is this idea of tolerance. I need more of it to get the same effect. And with chemicals, it looks like more quantity. With uh, more behavioral things like like sex and porn, that to tolerance looks like needing like uh, more interesting content, edgier, more graphic, more aggressive, more violent content, more and in more interesting sorts of scenarios. Uh, with relationships that can look like, you know, always needing something new, some, someone new, new something to do, and just, I always need something new. Um, this might show up with like, this would be, this would be an interesting study. I, I just thought of this. It would be fun to study this. Um, you know, you know, some people, they, they go to a restaurant or coffee shop and they have the regular thing and they, and they always get that. And then some people are always trying something new. It'd be interesting to see if that has any correlation with like, um, more compulsive tendencies in other places. I don't know that it would because then there's also this obsessive adherence to the obsessive rigidity, which is also an aspect of it. But anyway, that's a rabbit trail. Uh, and most of all, uh, addiction is a failure to bond with someone healthy and it's uh, succeeding to bond uh, with something very unhealthy. Uh, so before we really get into talking about what addiction interaction is, we want to go over the acting out cycle. And this is very important because uh, addiction, compulsion, obsession, they, they all happen in a cycle. There's, it's a cycle, it's a pattern, it, it moves, it rotates. And like a, like a whirlpool, you tend to get caught up in it and just stuck there. Speaking of water, so here's a metaphor that I often use, and, and I think it's a good one, so, which I might have mentioned in another lecture, but it's worth mentioning again. Picture Niagara Falls, big waterfall, lots of water, a huge river leading into it. Uh, you know, certain death if you go over the edge and hit the bottom. Uh, and then there's those <clears throat> special people who go over in barrels. Uh, Lord have mercy on them. Um, so imagine a, a, a person, imagine yourself in a canoe, you know, standard canoe, um, about 10 feet from the edge of Niagara Falls. And thinks, do you have a choice at that point which way you're going to row? And the answer should be, <laughs> uh, well, it's, 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 not, it's not readily apparent because, you know, nobody has a gun to that person's head saying, you know, row into the falls. Um, but that person might also be desperately rowing against the current and the current is just too much. So really they have no functional choice, even though they technically have a choice. Take that person five miles upstream. Do they have a choice which way they row? Yeah, probably. And they probably will retain that choice for, you know, three or four miles. And, but again, the closer they get to the falls, the faster the current picks up, the more they're caught up in it, the less choice they have, the closer they get. And that's a very important thing to recognize in how the acting out cycle works is that people don't just relapse. They don't just act out for the heck of it or out of nowhere. There's always something that leads up to it. And a major aspect of the recovery process is learning to recognize just what are the things that lead up to it or what tends to be your cycle. What are the elements of your cycle that drive, what, what drives your cycle? What are those core elements? So 
Uh, so here's a couple depictions of how that system is understood. Uh, this one's done in two circles. Uh, so in the top circle, at the very top, uh, there's a component for, for belief system, and that's talking about core beliefs, core beliefs that are shaped by, by life and everything. Core beliefs lead to impaired thinking, impaired thinking, justification, rationalization, things you say to yourself to make it okay, lead to the addictive cycle. And then you shift into the lower circle, you're preoccupied with the thing, you, st you go through your rituals to get ready for it, you actually act out, that's the very bottom of the bottom circle, you feel despair afterwards, and then you're preoccupied with it still. So you kind of go through that bottom circle round and round, and the bottom circle goes back up into the, up into the top circle, creates unmanageability consequences in life, which then tend to reinforce the belief system that I am worthless, I am scum, I can't get out of this, and uh, and then it just perpetuates in that way. Corresponding, there's a recovery system that is similar. It's, uh, again, uh, a different set of beliefs, ideally, at the very top, that supports more empowered thinking, responsible adult seek, uh, thinking, and... Then you shift into the bottom cycle, which is now the renewal cycle. It has to do with uh, focus and passion and projects and purpose. And then there's rituals or disciplines that support that. Uh, the very bottom um, of the bottom circle, in contrast to acting out behavior, they talk about zone behavior. And that's a reference to, to flow, flow states, that uh, state of you know, engaging in just the right thing that is for you. You do, you do a lot of self-reflection to figure out like what are your gifts, what are your enjoyed experiences, what are your talents, and like what, what, it, like, what, what are you made to do? And you do that. And then there's rewards that come from that that reinforce like the focus and the passion and all of that bottom cycle then creates an experience of resilience and the resilience supports these new beliefs. And so that's good. So that's, that's ideally the recovery system we're getting into. This handout, it's one of my favorite depictions of the cycle of addiction because it has all of the components there again. Uh, again, uh, main circle. So at the very bottom, you have your, well, this one, this one will actually start way back when. They'll talk about, uh, you know, step number one are the wounds you sustain probably in childhood and in relationships that create a belief system, that create shame. And then triggers, that's item number two, triggers touch on those wounds. They, they scratch at the wounds. And hurt them and then that leads to being preoccupied with the trigger with the wound with whatever you think the escape might be there's the obsession there's a fantasy that leads again to ritualization that leads to acting out that leads to more despair more shame and guilt and then that tends to reinforce the wounds and then you go back through again um, this one will be posted on the, the canvas and you can download and work with it um, this one this one I threw together. I literally was patching it together the morning before I was recording because I procrastinate. <clears throat> Don't judge. So uh, this is this is the one. This is the one that I use a lot. It's based on it's based on the others, but oftentimes when I'm doing this work with with a client, I will draw this out with them and we'll we'll look at what the components are. So uh, and I'll, I'll uh, talk a little bit more in depth about what some of them are here too. So uh, so acting out. Uh, we say we say that that's that's the top. And when I talk about the acting out cycle, I say the cycle goes from moment of acting out to moment of acting out. And one of the things to remember, depending on the method of acting out, is that cycle could last a day, it could last a year, and anywhere in between. Uh, so 
that, that's important to remember, especially once you get into acting in. So, so acting out again, um, it's whatever you do, the drugs, the sex, the porn, it's the relapse, it's the thing you promised yourself you wouldn't do that you don't want to be doing. And it's the thing that causes a consequence. Um, following the acting out in the black circle, in the blue circle, there's the aftermath. You're feeling blue, you're feeling glum, you're feeling depressed, despairing. Um, it's the... It's the, it's the shame moment where you say, oh, I did it again. I can't believe myself. Um, and, there, and there's a lot of shame in it. Uh, and here's where I'm going to say it's, it's a shame and not, uh, not a sadness, not a remorse. If it were a healthy sadness, healthy remorse, you know, as we, as we who know the Bible could say that the godly sorrow that leads to repentance, uh, that, that's good. It's good to feel bad about having done a bad thing if that feeling bad then leads you to do something good and if it leads you to change. If it doesn't, if, that, if those bad feelings, if those sad down feelings do not convert to action, then it's just shame. You know, and if those feelings don't convert to connecting with someone, then, then it's just isolating shame. And then, it, then, it's, then it's despairing, then it's really toxic and unhealthy. And so uh, oftentimes, Someone is in this aftermath, which again could be a few hours, few days, few weeks. Who knows? They'll often shift from there into an acting in cycle, uh, and this is uh, important to recognize. So, acting in is not recovery. Acting in is not sobriety. Acting in is continuing the acting out cycle. Here's where you get people who uh, become obsessed with something that's uh, socially acceptable. So this might be the person who maybe gets clean off of chemicals and now they are working 100 hours a week or someone who uh, you know gets you know stops acting out with drugs and with with hookups and everything um, and you know or out of control eating and now they're now they develop um, more of a an anorexia approach to, to life you know, I'm not going to indulge in any good food I'm not going to have any sex in fact I'm going to be very opposed to sex. Um, or I'm just going to maintain obsessively rigid control over my life, and and that's where my focus is going to be. And oftentimes there can be this really hostile, militant opposition to the former behaviors, and really pronounced efforts to just avoid it, just 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 avoid it. If I can just stay away from it, block it out of my life, then then I'm good. One uh, one feature that can be someone who, uh, and this is where you might find like the the classic like dry drunk. Uh, syndrome is someone who they may have maybe a lot of clean time, but they haven't really done any inner work. They don't really know how to talk about their feelings. They're still not good at relationships. They haven't repaired any relationships. They haven't really developed anything in their life. They're just, they're just abstaining. And, you know, if all of your focus goes into abstaining from a thing, you're focusing on taking something out of your life. You're basically building your life around a void. And to quote Mr. Spock, nature abhors a vacuum and the, something will inevitably fill it. Where you have choice is what you're going to fill that with. Uh, and so again, the difference between acting in and sobriety, one of the differences is going to be um, your level of connection with other people, your level of presence within your own self, the type and degree of like purposeful activity you have in your life, and the capacity you have to be really present with yourself, present with your feelings, present with your conflicts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, from from acting in, uh, there's there's a couple things that could happen there. So, acting in is exhausting and is draining and it's really tiring and it's really disconnected and can and it can lead to burnout. 
you you're 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 holding yourself together willpower 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 you get tighter and tighter and tighter until inevitably you crack you snap you you blow out you you have your meltdown uh, so so that's one thing that could happen um, and that could be it could be one of your one of your triggers that causes that to happen the trigger again is the thing based on you know childhood wounds, life traumas, and everything. Uh, triggers are triggers for a reason. Discovering that reason is really important so that you can know how and why to uh, support the trigger or not being triggered by the trigger. The other variation could just be, so I'm acting in, I'm acting in, I'm in this really rigid lifestyle uh, that doesn't have any room for margins or any room for disasters or any room for anything unusual. Uh, and so then something unusually disastrous happens. I get fired, somebody breaks up with me, I get injured, that's a big one. Or, um, you know, a virus breaks out that like says I can't go to work and I can't see my friends anymore, you know, I mean, <laughs> that would never happen, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so some, some combination of burnout and trigger will tend to happen and then the person who's acting in, they, they may not relapse right away. May, maybe they will, but uh, not all the time. Sometimes they'll shift from being uh, act in acting into a state of uh, preoccupation or obsession. And here's where the thought spirals start up. The person's thinking about the thing, or they're, they're thinking about the trigger and obsessed over that, and or they're thinking about what's going to be the thing that gets me out of it that I can do to escape it. And here's where you'll see I'm starting to do my justifications, my rationalizations, my thinking errors. I'll start to make it okay in my head in some way. And the, again, so this this period, again, like, like all of these periods, this could this period could last for um, minutes, uh, hours, days. This could last for you know weeks and months. In the book Tweak by Nick Sheff, uh, it's the companion book to Beautiful Boy by 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 Dave by Dave Sheff. You but but Nick tells his story of, of a couple of different relapse cycles, and uh, and and in one of them, he tells a story about. Uh, you know, he, he's acting out, he gets clean, gets sober, gets a sponsor, and he's doing all of these things. And he, ta and he talks about this cycle that for him takes place over months of, I'm working hard, I'm working hard, but there's just these nagging things in, in his head. There's these nagging doubts, these feelings, these feelings of loneliness, these things that don't ever fully get addressed. Uh, but then they just build and build and build and build until you know, at one point he's just like, and I was with, and I was with Zelda and we went to a party and then we were just using drugs. And and in that moment, it looks like he just relapsed. But if you know the story, you know the context, you know he's been thinking about it, getting ready for this for months. And that can often happen. At some point in gray here, there's the point of no return. That's your edge of the waterfall. At some point, you've just decided, I'm going to do it. Uh, and, that, and again, that could be you know, a few minutes before. Um, when, it, when, it's, when, there, when it's a very short gap between point of no return and acting out, that creates that feeling of out of control impulsivity. Um, when there's a longer period, there's still kind of a compulsive aspect to it and still a little bit of that loss of control, but it's, it's a lot more, I don't know, there, there's more of, that, more of that cycle feel of um, I'm, just, I'm just in the spiral and I'm just despairing because I'm in this downward spiral. But anyway, after whenever you hit your point of no return, you then shift into a period of ritualization, um, which again, can be really, really, really short, or it can be longer. It can be as short as, okay, I was at my desk and I wasn't looking at porn and I wasn't planning on it, and now, now I'm planning on looking at porn and I'm opening up the browsers and 
tabbing over in whatever whatever I'm doing and, and I'm gone. Um, or it can be longer, like, okay, it's gonna take me a day to get my rig and get my, get to my dealer and get my drug and get to my, get to my safe spot. Or, um, you know, if it's a little more involved, it could be like, okay, I'm gonna do it now. So I have to go through the process of like getting on the websites, finding a hookup partner, you know, negotiating whatever I'm gonna do, whatever I'm gonna negotiate uh, until until you can get back to the spot up at top where you're acting out. So in that, so that's that's kind of the gist of of what that acting out cycle looks like on the front end. And again. Um, when you re recognize that, that when you recognize how triggers work, you know, there, there's a lot of story impacting this. Uh, no one acts out for no reason. Everyone acts out in the context. And part of why we value really learning the person's story is to learn, okay, so what has their relationship to the drug been, to the thing been? Uh, what role has it played in their life? Uh, what are they medicating? What are they trying to avoid? Um, how is this acting out behavior promising to serve the person. And it is serving them in some way, in a very costly, momentary way. But in that moment, in the irrationality, the, the sub-logic of the preoccupation stage, um, acting out is better than not acting out, or it presents as it will be that. Um, feeling the feelings you feel when you act out, they promise to be better than whatever you're feeling without it. And, that's, and again, that's not logical. Addiction is not logical. You can't logic or argue or debate yourself into sobriety. Uh, you have to factor in these, these sub-logical, irrational, emotive-based, very visceral physical realities to really um, really begin to, to make any headway here. So, what is addiction interaction? So, at the very beginning, uh, you remember I um, created the, uh, the, the house of addiction or the four corners of addiction, and it's uh, the what I call the, the crucial component, crucial components of addiction, where you can consider there, there's, there, there's a person who's doing it and the factor is there. There's the thing that's being done. There's the environment in which it's being done. And then there's the reason that it's being done, the, the relationship that the person has with the thing. Uh, and so in, the, in that model, in that understanding, it's very important to remember that the crucial component of addiction is not the substance or the behavior being used. It almost doesn't matter what it is you're doing. What matters is why. It's the relationship the person has with the experience and the function that the experience performs that keep the cycle going. Um, this is one point where, uh, where I've, I find myself diverging very far from this idea of, of the temperance model. Uh, again, the temperance model is this idea that some things are just inherently bad for you. I mean, things are bad for you, but like some things are inherently addictive and in that you use them once, you get some exposure and you're automatically an addict. And that's, that's, a, that's a premise that has informed the war on drugs and a lot of drug policy, that, that a lot of things that have been very harmful. Uh, so I, I tend to reject that idea as well as the idea of, of an addictive personality. Um, the idea that some people are just inherently addictive or inherently going to be addicted to everything. Now, some people will tend to be addicted to, to almost anything, but it's not be, it's, I don't think it's a personality thing as much as a, a life story context. You've been primed for this by, by your life sort of thing. And there's a tension here. I say here that drugs are not inherently addictive, though they can create physical dependence. No person is inherently addictive, but rather certain individuals are highly vulnerable. People become addicted when they are vulnerable in the right ways and then bond with the substance or experience that meets a critical need in their lives. 
Also very important to recognize that addictions compound by nature. They get worse. They get more intense. Uh, you develop tolerance. You pick up other things. Um, one of the best ways to understand what addiction interaction is, it's an addiction cluster. Um, very few people are addicted to just one thing. There's always going to be there's going to be a couple things or a couple things that they cycle back and forth with. Over and above all of it or throughout it, it's important to remember that um, this person is working to preserve a, a twisted sort of homeostasis. To the addicted person, chaos, fear, stress, trauma, intensity, um, these, these are their normal. And again, this comes out of you know, childhood things or the feeling of feeling neglected and sad and isolated and lonely. Um, you know, that if, that's the, if that's your formative life, that's your normal, and that's your homeostasis, and you're going to tend to preserve that or gravitate toward preserving that or reenacting that, even if that means doing these harmful behaviors. So when we talk about addiction interaction, there's, there's a couple key considerations that, that are going to come up. Uh, one is, do I have to quit everything? And two is, do I have to quit it all at once? Uh, one, one, one fellow I work with, so, so we've identified his, his top four. There, there's alcohol, there's, there's cannabis, there's food, and there's spending. And that's, that, that's been his cluster. And a back and forth question we've always been doing is, okay, so do you work on one at a time? Do you try to quit it all at once? And the, the trade-off is that if you quit everything all at once, you quit. And you can get out of the cycle a lot more cleanly that way. And the downside is the withdrawals are a whole lot worse and you're short like four major coping systems. Uh, if you try to go the route of I'll quit one at a time, it's kind of, it's maybe easier, easier in air quotes, and that you, you're not giving something up. But the, but the reason why it's easier is that uh, you're, you're not out of your cycle. So the moment you feel some distress, okay, so maybe you can't use... Uh, use your drugs anymore, but you can still do something with compulsive spending, or you can still do something with food. What can happen there is it might be a little bit less intense process, but it just gets dragged out and dragged out. And as long as the cycle is going, you're vulnerable to relapsing on all of it. Uh, so as long as you're feeding into that cycle with at least one behavior, then the cycle is still going, and you're very vulnerable to falling back into it all at once. So in an ideal sense, we'd say, yes, you'd quit everything, and there is some value to quitting it all at once. However, all of this has to be tailored to the individual, the resources you have, the motivation of the person, and you're not going to get to do your ideal all of the time, and that's, that's fine. In this, so we're going to consider this term emotional sobriety, and uh, we'll, we'll bring out more definitions around this when we talk a bit about recovery. I think I also did a podcast episode about this on the Smart Council podcast too. Um, but it's this idea of um, being having sober emotions or, again, being able to have your emotions, feel your emotions, process your emotions, and not have to hide from them. Uh, you're also going to want to consider relationship sobriety. One, uh, one maddening dynamic that happens, you, know, you, see, you see this in, in a lot of like inpatient programs. If someone comes in, they do all right to very well uh, in, in the program, and they do all right quitting drugs. Uh, but then as soon as they get out, they get back with their ex or they get back with their partner. And typically there's a high drama component to that. Maybe there's a codependent component to that. Or maybe it's just that, that their, their, their partner is not clean. And so it's, and, and the, the person might get out and they might even be clean for a little while, but, but it, it's because the relationships were part of their cycle. And so once they get back with their, with their partner, then they're, prime to relapse pretty soon. 
So there's a lot of ways where one of the high costs to recovery often is relationships. Oftentimes you cannot go back to all of your same relationships and maybe some of the, the relationships closest to you or most important to you also need to, to end. And again, there's a little bit of a difference between if it was like a really intimate, supportive, healthy relationship, like we're not talking about that. We're talking more about these are the relationships that for you are yet another obsession and another fixation. And it's really based on like drama and infatuation and intensity and sex and everything. Um, like those, those are the relationships that are gonna trigger relapse. In considering sobriety and considering addiction interaction and getting out of the cycle, remember, it's all about what drives the cycle. What are the traumas? What are the triggers? What are the key core needs that, that drive that? Those are the things you're going to need to really address the most. Uh, key challenges in working with addiction interaction. Um, it's the biggest one is that, you know, one addiction will get treated and the other will go untreated or worse yet, not even be acknowledged and be poorly misunderstood. Um, this can happen. <laughs> this happens a lot. Someone's like, you know, okay, fine. I'll quit alcohol. I'll quit meth. I'll quit cocaine, I'll quit heroin, quit opiates, don't touch my weed. I'm not quitting weed. And I'll be like, well, okay. Or they might say, I'm gonna quit all the drugs, but I'm still gonna smoke. It's still going. Uh, or like, I'll quit all the drugs, even, even I'll, I'll even stop smoking, uh, but then they're drinking you know, eight pots of coffee a day. Uh, or, and again, there, there's this one too, where like, okay, clean up all substances, um, but I'm still looking at porn. Or I'm still, doing doing these hookups and and that's how my cycle is continuing uh and again then then you factor in that like maybe you say okay i'm gonna quit all the acting out stuff um but then i'm just gonna like obsess over work or exercise or i'll just like be at church all the time and uh and again not that being at church all the time is, is a bad thing but if the way that you're at church all the time is a way that says i'm not actually gonna think about my past i'm not gonna resolve any conflicts i'm not gonna make any amends. I'm not going to do any feelings work. I'm just going to, you know, try and, you know, pray the addict away. Uh, they, there's going to be problems. There, there's going to be things that are still uh, unaddressed that will show up in some other way. Uh, whatever the untreated addiction is will tend to continue to cause problems and are eventually, you know, leading to the relapse. It's very possible. Uh, so... What needs to happen is that um, both addictions need to be addressed or more likely like three or four, like your whole cluster. Uh, and so this is this places a high demand on the addictions counselor to be able to A, recognize, hey, there, there's a cluster going on. And also B, to say, we're, we need to be able to talk about all of it. So here's where you need to be able to be, you know, be really good with your motivational interviewing, really good with creating rapport, developing trust. Um, there's a lot of ways where a person is not going to be open to looking at all of these things right away. Um, once you've spent a couple years with them developing trust, uh, then, then you could challenge them. Yeah. I mean, not, it's not always a couple years, maybe, maybe like six months. Um, but, but it takes time. It takes time to develop enough trust with a person to where you could say, Hey, let's, uh, I think this thing you're doing, I think that's the problem. And they can say, Hmm, let's look at that. And again, like we've said several times, and we'll say it several more times, the core, fu the core function driving all of the addictions must be addressed. And that's the function that it's performing and the, the need that it's seeming to meet for you. In all of this, we've been mentioning a bunch of things. What sorts of experiences can qualify as addictions? Uh, AKA, can you really be addicted to classical music? 
And that's a reference to uh, a chapter in In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which you're reading by Gabor Mate, uh, where he talks about uh, his, his, his compulsive and obsessive relationship with classical music. And we might say, wow, that's a very privileged addiction. And he would agree with you, it is. But again, when you look at the relationship, the relationship you have with the thing, then yeah, it could be addicted. So it could be addictive. So uh, the other the other kind of scary one we'll have to look at is like whether like like chocolate bars can really be addictive or like whether Star Trek could really be addictive. And and again, it's like <laughs> um, it's like I don't want to touch that, but it's 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 the the relationship you have with it. So here's my list. It's not at all uh, comprehensive, but well, this one has alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, opiates, and heroin, and the prescription and non-prescription things there too, uh, amphetamines, meth, all the hallucinogens, and there's a lot, so I didn't name them all, but you know, LSD, mushrooms, ecstasy, etc. Um, benzodiazepines and barbiturates, club drugs, and again, there's a lot, so I didn't name them all, inhalants, caffeine, nicotine, sugar, chocolate, sex, pornography, masturbation, uh, food in the binging sense, food in the deprivation sense. Uh, there's an addictive component to both of those. Uh, gambling, the internet, gaming, social media, relationships, romance, exercise, work, religion, anger, sadness, adrenaline, chaos, drama, gluten, cheese, self-harm. Uh, the idea is that it's whatever gets me out of myself in the present moment. You know, if, if you look at this through the lens of like the DSM diagnostic criteria, which we're going to have a lecture about that, uh, you know, not everyone's going to meet DSM criteria for for like chocolate bar use disorder. Uh, they're, they're not going that, that, that's not going to happen. What you can notice, though, is, well, when I when I have a chocolate bar, what is my purpose for it? Am I hungry? Am I savoring the moment? Am I enjoying it? Uh, or am I kind of bored? Am I kind of mindlessly doing it? Am I wolfing the whole thing? To, to not feel something else? Uh, am I kind of ritualistically doing, like I have a, I have a little piece every night before bed? Uh, you know, there, there's a whole lot of different relationships you can have with that chocolate bar, you know, some of which are, some of which could be really great, really healthy, really beautiful. Uh, some of which, again, are gonna have more of that like compulsive, obsessive component to it. Okay, so and again, talking about addiction interaction versus co-occurring disorders. Um, the, the co-occurring disorders, as, as they're typically understood within clinical jargon, it's talking about um, addictive and compulsive behaviors interacting with and impacting a mental health disorder. And the idea is that they, they might have, maybe the mental health disorder came first and people started acting out as a result of that, and now they're kind of just synonymous. Or maybe the person started out with the acting out behaviors and then kind of triggered a mental health disorder. That can happen too. That, that's an interesting bit of history to look at. Um, either way, though, what you're going to be looking at, though, is where they're at now. They're, they're both happening together, and they're both, they're both impacting each other. That, that, that's the most important thing. And it's in particular where, like, like, because I'm drinking a lot, it's making my depression worse. Or when my depression you know, spikes, then, then my drinking gets worse as a result of that. Uh, and there's that sort of symbiotic relationship. Uh, which again is, is very related and very um, very important to think about, and there's a lot of overlap between this other phenomenon we're talking about, which is more of the the interaction, where it's um, I have a set a cluster of addictive behaviors, and they're all interacting and impacting each other. 
So we'll touch on this again. We've been talking about um, these terms acting out and acting in, and I've been just kind of throwing them around. Let's, uh, let's define those a little bit more here. So uh, acting out is going to be your more conventional, your more conventional addictions. So these are going to be the ones that are visible, the ones that are very volatile, very explosive. They're leading to a lack of control, a high element of chaos in your life. Um, so typically it's going to be, it's going to be using the drugs. It's going to be having the hookup. It's going to be looking at porn. It's going to be gambling. It's going to be maybe the, the food binges, the things that are more overtly out there damaging to yourself and suggest a lack of control. There's often times going to be a high risk attached to them as well as a high consequence, uh, for doing them, for getting caught. Uh, a lot of these are often considered socially unacceptable to some degree. And Christian language, we could um, compare these to like, like, like sins or uh, what the fathers talk about is the passions. It's the, the desires in our hearts that are now untamed, out of control, and taking us uh, in a direction that, that's destructive for us. Uh, and it could be like passions that are, you know, the, the traditional, you know, seven deadly sins. So pride, lust, vanity, you know, drunkenness, debauchery, lust, etc. things like that. And... Here, here's where we could say, you know, why, why talk about acting in? Why not talk about I, why not talk about I, I relapsed or I failed or, or something? I like the term acting out because it gets to be a, a clinical term and it gets to make it a clinical issue rather than a personal issue or rather than a moral issue or rather than uh, a question your worth issue. So, you know, if I say, oh, I, I've, I've looked at porn again, like I failed. Um, there, there's a sense where um, I'm like internalizing that and saying and like or maybe over identifying with it or taking this really dismal despairing approach to it uh, compared to if I say I acted out I can say I did the thing and I still need to take responsibility for it and I still need to you know feel some some remorse about it but I've been able to in a sense separate myself from it to say okay um, rather than like, I am, I am the muck. Like I can say, okay, I've extracted this muck out of me. Now I can look at it and we can all work on it together. I like, I like that sort of terminology. Um, there's a way to, I think in the, the, the dialectical behavioral therapy world, the DBT world, they talk about like target behaviors, uh, that they're working on and say like, I engaged in my target behavior. And the idea is like, I did the thing that I'm trying not to do. I did the thing that I'm, that I'm working on. And like especially in a group setting, there gets to be a way of, again, like it's it put it puts some thick rubber gloves over it so you can handle it without it hurting. If it's just if you, there there can be some value to saying specifically, I drank too much, I had a hookup, I I, I masturbated again, I you know whatever I did. There there's some value to that sometimes, but sometimes if the shame is really great or if you're doing it in a group setting, it can be helpful to have a neutral way to talk about it so that everyone can talk about it. And there's this kind of this understanding of like, we, we kind of know what we're all talking about. But again, we've got the, the emotional rubber gloves on so we can talk about it without it hurting as much. Uh, and, and that can be helpful. Okay, so all of that's for acting out. Acting in is um, more covert. Uh, it can be more implosive. Um, there's, as opposed to being out of control, there's an obsessively high degree of control. And as opposed to chaos, there's a high amount of rigidity. Um, with the behaviors that tend to be associated here, it's going to be things like, like, like we've said a bunch of times, it's 
I'm maybe I'm compulsively exercising like six hours a day or I'm working really, really long hours or like I do this, like I compulsively pick up projects and be like, I'm gonna work on something else. I wanna work on something else. Or I develop like a higher version to things. It's not just, I wanna be clean, but I want to wage the war on drugs or I'm going to now get like really like judgy around anybody who's you know, failing in the recovery or I'll become like the, the sobriety police or something. Um, and be, become really defensive around this whole thing because really I'm still in, insecure myself and I haven't worked through like, my emotional issues related to this. So, um, so because I haven't actually worked through my own emotional work or addressed my own wounds or resolved my own conflicts, there's a rigidity and a fragility to me that is really vulnerable to being bumped at all. And so I have to maintain this front of like kind of defensiveness and a lot of performative behaviors um, because it's, it's, it's still all external. Uh, because it's socially acceptable, these things, maybe even really, uh, really celebrated, there can be really low risk to doing them, uh, low consequences, and, and we just have to be very careful there. It's very easy to get caught up in burnout when we're acting in. And uh, in contrast to the, again, in, in Christian thought, in contrast to the, the, the sins and the passions, here's where we talk about more of the, um, you know, the, the, the ascetic passions or the monastic passions. So, so, so it's a, uh, we see this a lot with, with pride in particular. So if I am acting out with pride, that might be where I'm like saying like, I am better than everybody else or I don't need anybody. And you know, the more obvious like arrogance that is kind of, kind of a turnoff and that, that's a little easier to see. The, the more acting in like monastic pride would be that where it's like, almost at the pharisaical component where I'm like, you know, I keep all the fasts, I do all of the vigils, I don't do any sins, and I am very proud of that. Uh, so it's, and, and it's pride, same as the other. Uh, and we might say in that case, it's, you know, better to be proud about those things than, than better than worldly pride, but it's, it's still that, that self-righteous kind of judging others, monastic pride, and it, it's still, is a type of passion and it can still get you in trouble. So why is this important? So like we've been saying, this is all important because we need to remember that uh, the addictive, um, a spell trick is important. Uh, we need to remember that the addictive mechanism is active until it is not. Um, the only thing that changes is the object of obsession. So again, you know, if you, if you put all of your focus on, it's the weed, it's the porn, it's the drinking, it's the, it's the anger, whatever it is. Well, I mean, if you're at the point of like looking at your anger outburst, like, I mean, you're, you're probably a little more advanced in this, but um, if you put, just put all of the focus on like, here's this one behavior I want to stop, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss what's driving it because the, again, there's generally a cluster of things and they're being driven by a central fear or a central wound or a central obsession. And uh, the, the object of obsession, the focus of where that obsession can shift, and it often does, but it's still the same cycle. So you got to remember that cycle. It's about the cycle. It's about the cycle. Uh, and again, remembering again that that house of addictions, the, the four corners of addictions, we want to be able to recognize like the person corner, the, the, the target behavior corner, and, and you know, the environment corner too. But the most important corner is going to be the, the reason and relationship corner. Um, the, the reason why you're doing the thing is so much more important than the thing you actually do. And that's the thing that really needs to, to be addressed uh, if you really want to develop true sobriety. And, uh, and again, 
So at, at this level of consideration, uh, there's a possibility maybe quite a few more people become uh, implicated in this addiction cycle than just those using conventional drugs. Um, you know, for a test of this, you can examine in your own heart. So when I'm bored and I pull up my phone to scroll, why, why, why is that my response when I have an idle moment? And, you know, what is it about like idleness and boredom that says like, I need to get out of this or, you know, what is with our preoccupation with, I'd like soothing and pleasure and, and good times and good tastes and everything. Um, there's a way that maybe, maybe more people are addicts than, than we think. There's also when, when, again, when we talk about, uh, more diagnostic uh, concerns, we'll talk about the, the levels of care and, or the, not the levels of care. <laughs> That's different. The the levels of addiction. Um, there's a lot of people that act out in some way that are also not addicts, and that that's a thing to consider too. Uh, and then we can talk about you know, there's a lot of these things that, that that are not healthy to do by any means, but sometimes the way that we do them while unhealthy is also not addiction. So that that's even further complication. Uh, but that's going to be in the diagnostic lectures. Uh, for now, so we're coming up on. Uh, time for this particular lecture um, from my uh, wonderful studio audience. Do I have any questions or comments or um, other things to consider? Okay, so the way you were talking about uh, how it really comes down to like, um, you know, an accessible relationshiphood and the instability, the constant adrenaline without the and subsequent um, soothing or calming down. Um, it sounds like, it sounds to me like um, attachment theory is kind of almost impossible to get away from. Um, also, sounds a little bit like psycho and uh, psychodynamic. And that like you know, talk about your issues, get into your subconscious, and like why are you doing this? Um, how how on slash off the mark am I with that? I would say you're fairly on point. So, so this, so this idea that um, because obsessive relationships and compulsive relationships are at the core of the cycle, and in this case, it's relationships with the object of your addiction. Uh, factoring that in, I would say yes, attachment theory becomes essential, or it becomes at least an essential component in how you approach therapy and in what sorts of interventions you you target. Because uh, again. You know, there there's some there's some value to the traditional CBT like logical. Let's you know think about are your are your core beliefs rational or irrational because those are going to affect your thoughts and feelings and behaviors. Like that's all true, but that's all on the logical level. Um, this, this attachment stuff, it's um, it's it's in the brain. It's in the the preverbal, very primitive, very primal brain, and it's very experiential, very visceral. Um, ideally, I physically experience, you know, eye contact, I experience attunement from my primary caregiver. And that creates a knowing that I am secure, that is deeper than anything I know. And that's and that, that that's in my body. And so so yeah, uh, the the if that the the undoing or the redoing of attachment is going to happen through other relationship through routinely physically experiencing being in a room with other people being in those connections and and in that sense yeah to, to your point um wondering about is, is psychodynamic work very valuable i'd say yeah there, there is a component of that that can be very useful again given that the resources allow for it but taking a lot of time to develop a relationship with a person and to use the relationship you have so when, when you're with a client you develop a relationship with them using that relationship itself 
as an intervention, as maybe the most powerful long-term intervention, that really begins to play in here um, because that's oftentimes the very core need that that, that person meets uh, or that the person needs. I have a guy that I'm working with where through a variety of factors, and I, and I can't say that like I am, I am the most important factor, but, um, but, but I, I, will, I will note that like uh, when, we're, when we've been in therapy together, um, we've talked a lot about what the relationship needs to be for him. And he's been able to be very articulate about like, I need you to be a, a relationship for me. And so I've been like, okay, I'll be a relationship for you. And then he does a lot of his own work with habits and everything. And at this point, a couple of years into it, he's seeing a lot of success. So yes, to, yeah, so, so, so Steven, to answer your question, yes, you're on point. What you're saying now goes back to something that I've heard perhaps from you before in our previous conversations or perhaps somewhere else, that healing really happens in relationships. So I think it's kind of cool that you as a counselor can provide that and use that as a, an intervention to help someone towards um, the recovery process. Yes. Thank you. I think I have said something like that before, that, that healing happens in relationships. So. Any other thoughts or questions around this content? Yeah, I've got a question for you. Sure. Um, so the, the typical kind of research or study or, or statement on drugs is a little different than some of the points you were making that goes around is, is uh, I, I can't remember if it's like crystal meth or cocaine, whatever it is, but you know, one, one dosage of it and you're instantly addicted. Um, and that's usually cited as something that's been re- researched or whatever, but I'm curious what your take on is is on that yeah so there so there is a reality that um some of these substances are highly highly dopaminergic and they are they're going to be really impactful and some of the like uh, once you get into like crystal meth too it's 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 a highly toxic thing um and and the high you're going to get from that is going to be like higher than anything you you can get so so that that is a reality uh again though does one hit an addict make and here's where i'm going to say i'm going to lean the direction of no given the context uh, which we're going to talk about in, in another lecture when we talk about like uh, risk factors and everything. But say, say you have a person who say, you know, grew up, you know, secure attachments, stable lifestyle, like never did any drugs, um, has a, like a cohesive sense of self, has emotional skills, has, has some good relationships. You know, one time in the 30s, they go to a bachelor party and they try some crystal meth. You know, are they going to get high? Yes. Are they going to maybe like act out a little bit as a result of that? Are they going to maybe have some withdrawals and maybe have some cravings to, to do it again. Sure. Um, but are they going to get into a compulsive cycle that they cannot get out of? Probably not, given that they don't need it. The, at that point, the, the crystal meth, the, the addictive substance, air quotes, um, it has no emotional load-bearing value for the person. It's just a thing. It's just a novelty. And even if they come back to it every now and then, it's not going to be in a compulsive, addictive way um, as it would be for, say, a different person. And say this is the person who did not have secure attachments, did experience abuse, upheaval, loneliness, a lot of things in childhood, maybe has already been acting out in other ways, has already been drinking, smoking pot, looking at porn, has been experimenting with some other drugs. And so it's kind of already in that mode of, I handle my emotions with chemicals. Uh, when that person tries crystal meth for the first time, yes, one hit is going to be highly risky for them because that might just be like, oh, here's the next thing, my new, my, my new obsession. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean and say, when it looks like a person has done the thing once and it was you know off to the races from there, 
I'm going to say there's probably a context leading up to that um, that has a lot of trauma involved in it. So it sounds it sounds like at least what the error in my mind, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is a common error for a lot of people, is to equate um, cravings with addiction. Because in my mind, I was like, it seems like you're going to really have this hankering after. But what you propose, correct me if I'm wrong, is is this idea that's like, well, yeah, they might have cravings, but if they're you know not looking to looking for coping mechanisms already they're going to find it realistic that they can deal with them yes they'll have them but that doesn't mean that they're addicted just because in my mind i think you know if you have those cravings that that means something's addictive right realizing those don't those don't need to be connected yes that's a good point about cravings so so when you bring in cravings so cravings are cravings are part of the the physical the physical neurological relationship you have with the substance so you know like you might have cravings for porn, cravings for alcohol, cravings for for meth. That 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 is a reality. And even someone who's not like in an addictive cycle, they they may crave the thing. And it's true. Like when we look at like the DSM criteria, uh, cravings are one of the criteria, but they're one of like eleven, uh, and you need at least two criteria to, to to make to make the disorder. So, so you so it's it's expected that you would have cravings. And that's part of the, the the physical dependence aspect of it. Uh, and the more the more often you use, then the more your body becomes accustomed to the thing. The more your body is going to, to want the thing. So so there is that. Uh, there is also though. But it, to to your point, what uh, what you're asking on, are you an addict just because you have cravings? And I'm gonna say no, not specifically. You might have had a dependence, uh, or you if you've had exposure and you you have that really strong memory that euphoric recall of the thing. Um, this becomes a really important issue when we talk about like prescription medications, because you can have people who maybe get a prescription of opiates for, for pain and they become physically dependent on it, but they are not addicts. They are not addicted to it. They, they use it responsibly. They use it as it's meant to be. They don't incur consequences. It's not a compulsive thing, uh, but their body needs it and that, and, and they'll, they'll crave it. They'll have withdrawals if they stop it. Um, so in that sense there, there is that craving, but, but there's not a withdrawal. Or, uh, you know, maybe you take some people who like they do they, they do a thing once or twice um, and then they realize, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, they'll have like really euphoric memories of it, like maybe, you know, years later. But just because they have the cravings, again, it doesn't mean that they're in a cycle. It just means I have this really intense memory that I'm thinking back to. Uh, great question. Great, uh, great questions, folks. Thank you. Um, so there's where I'm going to I'm going to break for this lecture and we'll come back in a little bit and do part two where we talk about some of the manners in which uh, drugs interact because that's really interesting. Um, but thank you again for participating in this one and we'll, uh, we'll see you all next time. love your feedback and invite you to share your thoughts about this conversation. Also, we'd appreciate your review and five-star rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Share your thoughts through email at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at facebook.com slash smartcouncilpodcast. Please consider supporting this podcast with a financial donation through patreon.com slash smartcouncil. Our theme music is by Trent Price. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. Thanks again for listening, and let's keep the conversation going. Music